Lately, I've found myself going into lecture mode with my children when they have crossed one of my expectations or unspoken rules. And uh, I really appreciate the people in this church. I, I think I'm the only one who struggles with this. You're all so great. But in those moments, I feel personally affronted, and I believe it is up to me to set everything straight with this child. And I end up doing harm, not good, for this child, because I have stopped trying to understand them, and I want to make sure that they satisfy me. But Jesus' kingdom is a new kingdom. It's a new world order which has broken into my old way of doing things. And my way of doing things is not compatible with his. I must live further in light of his messianic new world. It's a world where the oppressed find liberty and where the burdened find release. It's a world where sinners find mercy and acceptance not just a stern talking to. Therefore, whenever Jesus enters a person's life or when he enters a community, there will inevitably be a clash. Have you ever felt that clash? Have you faced the power struggle? Will you find your joy in submitting to the bringer of a new world, the Lord of all, the healer of your soul? Or will you just get mad if you don't get your way? The difference in response here is the difference between a true believer and a mere pretender. Which are you? Which do you look like? In Jesus' new world, there is no room for the old way of doing things. That's what this week's passage in Luke is all about. We will see in Luke 5 and 6, that Jesus brings a whole new world which is incompatible with the old world and therefore there's an inevitable clash. Let me pray again and ask the Lord for his insight into his word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, please fill us with your spirit. Grant us understanding as we read your word and seek to understand it that we might know you. Please help us to see Jesus more clearly for who he is, that we might participate in the joy and delight of his new world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together, and we're squarely in this large chunk of chapters where Luke presents us the teaching of Jesus. And we left off last week in Luke with Jesus attending a party at the house of Levi, a tax collector, and the power struggle between Jesus and the old guard began in that passage. It began with them asking Jesus' disciples why he would eat and drink with such sinners. And Jesus said it's because he's a doctor. He didn't come for the healthy, those who are questioning him. He came for the sick, all of these sinners that he's feasting with. So keep in mind that he's now identified himself as the one who is bringing health and healing to the world, and we pick back up with the conversation right there. 
Luke 5, starting at verse 33. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Let me stop there for now. The story begins here in verse 33 with the Pharisees reminding Jesus of standard practice of the day. John's disciples, uh, John is the other leader who was the forerunner to Jesus who was baptizing people. John's followers and the Pharisees' followers, the Pharisees are part of the, the religious uh, teachers in, uh, in, in Israel. Their followers all fast, but yours, Jesus, they eat and drink. Now, we know from other passages and from early rabbinic writings that the Pharisees fasted twice a week and they made sad faces on those days to ensure that everyone knew what they were doing. But Jesus apparently wasn't taking time to fast. They see him eating on these days that they've decided to fast on. And he and his disciples apparently don't look sad, but quite happy. They're having this big party with Levi and his friends. They're too busy feasting with undesirable characters. And so they remind Jesus of the standard practice. But in verse 34, Jesus responds with a question. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, I think it's noteworthy. I want to point out that Luke will tell us in verse 36 that Jesus also spoke a parable. And so one implication is that this question in verse 34 is not a parable. And I don't even think that it's a simple metaphor. Like just think of a wedding, any wedding. And you don't fast while the bridegroom is with you. What I think is happening is that the concept of the bridegroom and the wedding feast, these are well-known concepts in ancient Judaism that Jesus taps right into with these teachers. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. Verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This is what they're looking forward to in the coming kingdom of God's chosen one. In verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And look also at Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. As the end of the verse, as the bridegroom 
rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Hosea chapter 2 verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, which means my master. So with his question, with Jesus' question in verse 34, he's putting himself in the place of the bridegroom, and he's putting his disciples in the place of the wedding guests, who cannot fast but must feast while the bridegroom is with them. And the prophets spoke about this all over the place. Jesus is doing nothing short of declaring the arrival of the promised messianic kingdom, the time when God's chosen one would come and God himself would arrive in splendor to be with his people, to establish intimate relationship with them once and for all, to grant them to feast on the abundance of his goodness because he delights in them and has provided forgiveness of their sins. The one who came to call sinners to repentance, not the healthy but the sick. And so back in Luke, verse 35, Jesus does say that the days will yet come when the bridegroom, when, when I, Jesus, am taken away and then fasting will be appropriate once again, but not right now. Not just yet. Now is the time to celebrate the arrival of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now is the time to, to celebrate the establishment of his new order. Now is the time for God to marry his people. The bridegroom is here. It's time to feast with them. It is time to celebrate with them in this new thing that he is doing. <clears throat> so then Jesus tells a parable also, starting in verse 36. And this parable has three parts to it. Verse 36, we see part one. He basically says that when an old garment, you have this old raggedy thing that starts falling apart... When it gets a tear in it, you don't create a patch for that old garment by ripping up a new garment. Because if you do, both garments are now ruined. The new one, you just destroyed it and it doesn't match the old. It doesn't fit. You have to get something to match. Part two of the parable in verses 37 and 38 says that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And in case it's been a little while since you drank wine from a wineskin, you might want to know that new wine is still in the process of fermenting and as it oxygenates, it needs to expand. And old wineskins are fresh, fresh leather, fresh skins that have some give in them. So as that new wine ferments, the old wineskin can expand to take it and the, uh, if you use an old wineskin, it already has expanded as far as it can go. It's brittle now. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin, that skin is too brittle. It will burst and you lose the wine and the skin. It's a little bit like uh, kids, science experiment for today. What he's talking about, it's a little bit like putting a can of soda in the freezer. Okay? Do it. <laughs> See what happens. Okay? you'll lose the can and the soda by the end. 
So both part one of the parable and part two of this parable make a similar point. Jesus is, is simply saying that you can't take the new thing and add it to an old container. The two are simply incompatible. The new thing and the old container are incompatible. And so in light of the, the, the Jesus' declaration and, and his question in verses 34 and 35, he is simply and clearly saying here that I, Jesus, have brought a whole new world. He's saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the bridegroom. I have brought the new world that was promised by God long ago in which you have been waiting for for ages. But you people who are asking me these questions, who are pointing out all these things you think I'm doing wrong, you are still a part of the old world. I've brought a new world, but you're still a part of the old world. You have your own way of doing things. You want to get all the practices just right, and you want to make sure everybody else gets in line. But you can't tell Yahweh to shut down his feast and come back another day. You can't do this. If you try to fit me into what you want to do, it will ruin both my work and your life. And so to highlight the utter incompatibility of these two things, the the incompatibility of their self-interested lives and Jesus' new kingdom, Luke adds a third part to this parable that doesn't occur in the the parallel accounts in Matthew or Mark. Verse 39, he says, After drinking old wine, no one will desire the new. He thinks the old is good enough. Now perhaps Jesus takes advantage of the fact that aged wine is typically preferred over brand new wine. He does that to show us how attractive our own ways of doing things can be. Jesus wants to do something new, but we hold on to the old once we have tasted it. In other words, when you live for yourself, when you live for your own traditions and your own ways of doing things, you will like it and you will start to find your security in it. And then when Jesus comes, bringing a whole new world and a far deeper delight than you could ever have on your own, and he fulfills the promises of God in the Old Testament, and he establishes a new world order with himself reigning on high as King of kings and Lord of lords, you will find him to be incompatible with your plans. You will not desire him the way you thought you would. He will not satisfy you in the ways you expected him to. Because Jesus will not play your games. Jesus will not bow to your wishes. How does this apply? Friends, please don't forget who Jesus is. Please don't forget who Jesus is. The fundamental confession of the Christian is that Jesus 
is Lord. This means that Jesus is in charge and I am not. This means that Jesus is God and I am not. That he is the captain of my soul and I am not. Please don't forget this. Don't ever forget this. We forget this when we expect Jesus to make our pain go away now. We forget this when we expect Jesus to make us happy and healthy. He's a doctor after all. He came for the sick. Why won't he heal me or my loved ones? Why won't he make all this persecution and this suffering or these ailments or whatever it might be? Why won't he make them go away? We must remember that Jesus has brought a new world. He did not simply come to improve my world. He came to inaugurate his own world. And the sooner I can recognize what he is up to and the sooner I get on board with his program the more likely I am to actually enjoy the ride, to enjoy the feast with the bridegroom. I can rejoice along with him. He is the guest of honor at this wedding. He is my king. Any attempt to hold on to my life in the face of Jesus' new world is a failure to recognize that he is the divine bridegroom. He is the man of honor. Now, is Jesus' world really that big a deal? Can't I possibly find some way to make his world and my world live in harmony? This is where Luke goes with the next scene. Moving into chapter 6, we see the incompatibility of Jesus' new world with the old world. Verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the power struggle here between the old world and the new world, it heats up further. Now in verse 2 They make a clear accusation and demand a reckoning. Jesus, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Sabbath, you should know, it's the Jewish name for Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And the word simply means rest. The the Hebrew word Sabbath means rest. It is the day when, during his week of creating the world, God rested from his work of creating... And God later commanded Israel through their leader Moses to rest from their regular work every Saturday in order to commemorate both God's work of creation and his seventh day rest and to commemorate his rescue of them from slavery in Egypt. So the Sabbath was 
they did this day of rest in order to have a picture of their relationship with the God who had made them and rescued them. Now, late in Israel's history as a sovereign nation, Sabbath breaking was one of the chief complaints brought against the people by the prophets and brought against the leaders. Because on Sabbath days, there was practices where marketplaces would remain open just like usual and people would go about their daily business and they'd come in and out of the city buying and selling and God's kingship and God's deliverance were long forgotten. So the prophets promised that a time would come when God's people would finally enter their true Sabbath rest, when their work would be done and they would be vindicated as God's people before all the nations of the earth. And they would find their true delight in God as their king. For example, hear what Isaiah has to say on the Sabbath in chapter 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. And the Jews, by Jesus' time, really took this to heart. By the first century AD, the Sabbath has become a badge of honor for the Jews. Its celebration is one thing that marked them off as different from all other nations. And all kinds of regulations had cropped up to provide safe zones for Sabbath keeping. You see, Sabbath breaking is no longer an issue for them because they put so much buffer in there to make sure that another generation would not get yelled at anymore by God's prophets. But in the process, they've still made the Sabbath all about themselves because they added all these extra things to it. Coming, coming back to Luke, with that background in mind, now that you see what the Sabbath is about. It's important to note, first off, that when the Sabbath... Or, sorry, when the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath in verse 2, they're not actually talking about God's laws. They are talking about their own additional regulations surrounding the Sabbath. Nowhere in the Old Testament scripture does it say you are not allowed to eat on the Sabbath or pick grain for yourself, or rub heads of grain in your hands to make them edible. People need to eat. And in fact, landowners were required to leave some of the extra grain behind so that the poor and the travelers could have something to eat on their way through. God prohibits you from doing your regular work on the Sabbath. It's the Pharisees themselves who prohibit you from doing about 600 specific things that they decided would classify as not resting. And so when they accuse Jesus of doing what is not lawful, they are talking not about God's law, but about their own law. So in verse 4, when Jesus says that David did what is not lawful, I don't think he's saying that David actually broke the law of God. 
I think he's simply repeating the Pharisees' own phrase and he's using their twisted logic against them. He's kind of like he's saying, if you've got a problem with me, then you've also got a problem with your national hero, David. So let's talk briefly about David to understand Jesus' response. Why does their accusation of Jesus fall apart in light of David's experience? And the main thing I want you to get here is it falls apart because Jesus puts himself in the place of David, highlighting once more his identity as God's appointed king. I think that's the the point where to get from this, even though it, it takes a bit of explanation to get there. Jesus putting himself in the place of David. What Jesus does is he reminds them of the time when David had been chosen and declared king of Israel by God. But he wasn't yet recognized as king either by the people or by the reigning monarch, Saul. King Saul had become quite jealous of David, actually, and had attempted to murder him on numerous occasions. And so David is now on the run for his life from King Saul in this story that Jesus refers to in 1 Samuel 21, when David and his men eat the bread of the presence. David is on the run from Saul, the reigning king. David is hiding out in the Israeli underground, trying to stay alive. But David is the true king. He's been anointed and chosen by God for that purpose. And yet he is the victim of a vicious power struggle. God wants to do away with the old empire headed by Saul. And he wants to establish a whole new world, a new dynasty headed by his chosen man, David. And when David comes to the priests at the temple in 1 Samuel 21 and asks for food, it's interesting that they are the ones to offer him this holy bread. That's what the text calls it in 1 Samuel, the holy bread. And they offer it to him as long as he and his men are holy as well. It's very strange. If this was really a a breaking of God's law, why would the priests even bring that up? Why would they be okay with it if the men are holy and have kept themselves from women, it says? And I think it's because putting a bunch of evidence together, in the Old Testament, when the king goes out to battle with his army, The army and its camp is considered holy. There's one passage in the Old Testament where the Lord says that he himself walks among the army's encampment. It's it's like holy ground, like the temple. And that's given as the reason why, in that particular passage, why they have to dig their latrines outside the camp. Because the camp is holy. And so for the priests with the holy bread, the issue of whether to give the bread to David was really an issue of who David was and what mission he was on. He was the anointed, albeit unrecognized, king fighting the battle of the Lord with his army. And what, they didn't, what those priests didn't quite know at the time because David concealed it from them was that David's battle was not against the Amalekites or the Philistines or some heathen nation. It was against King Saul himself. Now, back to Luke. Jesus now puts himself in the place of David. And he puts his kingdom in the place of David's new dynasty. 
Remember the context. Jesus is bringing this whole new world. He therefore puts the Pharisees in the place of Saul attacking God's true and chosen king. You see, Jesus' argument here by referencing David, I don't think he's saying that David broke the law, therefore I can break the law. He's not saying that. Nor do I think he's saying that David valued the commands to care for the needy more than the ceremonial limitations placed on the holy bread. And therefore, likewise, I also have the right priorities of which laws are more important than others. I don't think that's his argument. I think his argument is either you say that your hero David was wrong and unauthorized or you say it was authorized Because of who he was. And Jesus' intention is to draw a sharp highlighter around his own identity. Who am I? And that's why Luke drives the conclusion home in verse 6. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the whole thing rests on who Jesus is. You can't take all your extra Sabbath regulations and expect me to dump my new wine into them. If we do, everything will burst and fall apart. You can't ask me to submit to your own understanding of the Sabbath because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And if you recognize that I was God's chosen king... This issue of eating grain while we pass through this field, it wouldn't be an issue at all. You would have eyes to see the new world that I have brought. I am the one who brings your ultimate rest. I am the one who makes your work count in the sight of God. I am bringing a whole new world that won't fit into your traditions and your ceremonial categories anymore. Don't rip off a piece of me and use that to patch up your manufactured but failing systems. Friends, how does this apply to us today? Please don't forget who Jesus is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who gives us rest. He is the one, in other words, who enables us to be accepted before God. We don't have to keep working our tails off to try to get God's approval. Jesus is the one who's been declared king. He's establishing a new dynasty. And our way of doing things is fundamentally incompatible with his way of doing things. If we try to hold on to our own ideals, we will only end up hunting him down and trying to silence him like the Pharisees and King Saul before them. (coughs) So you can see that Jesus is a big deal. And his kingdom is also a pretty big deal. There are two ways of doing things. Jesus' way and my own way. And these two ways of doing things will never be compatible. They cannot live in harmony. One must live and one must die. The clash between them is inevitable. And so that's where Luke ends us here in this sequence in verses 6 through 11 with the inevitable clash. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, in this final scene of conflict for now, more conflict will come up later in the book. Verse 9, Jesus now asks, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And of course, the answer is obvious. It's lawful to do good, to save life. And so, who in this passage does good? Who saves life? It's Jesus. And who in this passage does harm on the Sabbath? Who destroys life? Look again at verse 11. They were filled with fury... And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So with a few brief scenes here that we've now read, these three in a row, Luke masterfully defends Christianity and the Lord Jesus against all charges. That Christianity is about doing good and saving people. But the Jewish leadership of this time is about doing harm and destroying people. And so the clash is inevitable. One of them must die. And so they must get rid of Jesus. And eventually, they must get rid of his followers as well, such as the Apostle Paul. But catch the irony. The one they wish to get rid of is the one who is doing good to save the world. The one that they seek to harm is the good doctor who heals sick sinners. This means, friends, that those who oppose Jesus are not seeking the good of anyone but themselves. They claim to seek the good, but actually they oppose what is good for the world. Opposing Jesus on the ground of truth or goodness is the height of hypocrisy. Nothing could be further from the truth. How does all this apply for us? Please don't forget who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who came to do good and to save the world. He is the good doctor who heals those who are sick with sin. And so whenever institutions oppose Jesus, they are opposing the good of the world. Please don't be ashamed to proclaim Jesus as Lord of all, because by doing that, you are working for the world's good. And so I encourage you to talk about this further with a spouse or a trusted friend after the service, since we won't be having small groups today. Please consider what parts of your life are still being lived as though you were in charge, as though you were the king of this world order. 
What would it look like for you to recognize Jesus as the Lord of all, as the one who has brought a whole new world? And how can you participate further in his new world without bringing your own set of demands to him? Because in Jesus' new world, there is no room for the old way of doing things. They're incompatible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the good doctor, the one who does good for the world, who saves life and doesn't destroy. Help us, Lord, to set our hope in Jesus alone. Help us to bow before him as the the ruler of this new world order. And Lord, thank you for, for making your new world already break into this present evil age so that we can taste and see that you are good and we can enter your kingdom and enter your rest as we trust in Jesus. Please help us to live as your subjects that we might rejoice and feast with our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.